Prime Minister Albanese meets President Xi. And, and similarly, we shouldn't expect to see immediate tangible results from this. The, the purpose of the meeting is dialogue. So it's not, it's not a reset in the way of these are two countries that are suddenly going to forget all their differences. G20 and IP theft. I think firstly, the assumption has often been that cyber-enabled IP theft is an issue that primarily faces commercial firms and universities uh, in advanced economies. But as we have conducted in our own research here at ASPE, a lot of uh, firms and universities in, in emerging economies are also increasingly targeted. You're listening to Policy, Guns and Money, the ASPE podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. This week, Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese met with PRC President Xi Jinping on the sidelines of the G20 summit in Indonesia. David Rowe speaks to Dr Alex Bristow about the significance of the meeting and what this means for the bilateral relationship, as well as other news from summit season so far. Hello everyone, I'm David Rowe. I'm here with Alex Bristow, the acting head of our Defence and Strategic Program. Alex, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks, David. So it's been a really big week in international affairs. We've had Anthony Albanese meeting with Xi Jinping, the Chinese president. We've had some hairy developments in the situation in Ukraine with Russia's invasion and the continuing war there. We've had another few uh, interesting developments in um, uh, US politics as well. But let's start by having a chat about the, the summit season there in Southeast Asia. A lot of the focus in Australia has been on whether or not Anthony Albanese would indeed uh, score a meeting with Xi Jinping, and that's happened. Obviously, people have talked about the idea of a reset, the idea of re-establishment of relations. Can you give us your thoughts, Alex, on just what the significance of this is, particularly your reflections on after six years of refusal, Xi finally agreeing to a meeting? Why did he agree? What can we actually read into the fact that they've made that decision? Oh, that's a good one, isn't it? Well, let's start with the word reset, because I I would like to sort of rebut that word, if you like. I I don't think that this would be seen as a reset really by by either side, but certainly not by the Australian side. I think you probably see some care exercised amongst the communications folk in in Albanese's team not to use the word reset as Mm. well. Mm. Uh, I, I think going into this, obviously, the Prime Minister said there's no preconditions and uh, I think we, we take that in two ways. It, it means that Australia is not giving anything up in order to uh, in order to have this discussion. The dialogue is is worth having by itself, even if you don't link it to uh, to, to any particular outcome. And, and similarly, we shouldn't expect to see immediate tangible results from this. The, the purpose of the meeting is dialogue. So it's not it's not a reset in the way of these are two countries that are suddenly going to forget all their differences and go back to how things were. Where you know, Xi Jinping addressed the uh, addressed the Australian Parliament about a decade ago, didn't mm. he? And there was all that sense that the two countries were seeing eye to eye when they when they signed a comprehensive strategic partnership. And it would go back to Tony, Tony Abbott's day. It looked like the, uh, the two countries were best buddies. I don't think anyone thinks that's going to happen again. So resets not the way to frame this. This is about putting a floor under the relationship, about stabilising it, about having a means to discuss points of friction that will already always be there. I think that. The Prime Minister's term was, you know, we'll cooperate where we can. And he gave some examples of where we might be able to do that on things like climate change, but we, we, we'll disagree where we must. And there's clearly lots of areas where Australia's going to 
have to continue to disagree with China because what China's doing is fundamentally against against Australian interests. So that's a lengthy way of getting to the other part of your question, which was why has she done this? The last time he had a, a, a top level dialogue with an Australian counterpart, I believe, was with Malcolm Turnbull in uh, 2016. So yeah, it's right. six years ago now. I mean, I, I think I would interpret it as a recognition within the Chinese system and by Xi himself that the coercive strategy that they pursued for at least two years has failed. And it's a little bit embarrassing to them that Australia has managed to resist, be resilient to Chinese pressure and be seen by the rest of the world as doing so. And so I think the Chinese saw an opportunity in a change of government to try a different approach. Uh, and I think the incoming Labour government here in Australia has been quite careful to recognise that the Chinese are doing that and therefore making it clear that they're not giving anything up and they're going to stick to Australia's national interests, while at the same time being willing to have a conversation as we've seen. I, I like your term, put a floor under it. I think that's a good one. Obviously, it has ended a period of hostility and and removed some of the acrimony that had built up and created a kind of diplomatic paralysis. I mean, we really just, you know, the freeze in discussions has meant simply that that business at the political level, at least, has not been able to continue for, for quite a long period. So, so I think that idea of putting a floor under it is a useful one. It enables the two countries to look for those areas of cooperation. And I'll be interested in your views of, on what those areas are. I mean, one sometimes wonders whether whether the trust is actually there at the political and diplomatic level to at this point to enable practical movement on um, on some of those areas potential areas of cooperation even if they can be identified but leaving that aside we'll be looking next for concrete indications that beyond having a meeting itself china might be willing to to make material reparations to the relationship. An obvious one there is the removal of some of the coercive trade measures that have been placed over the last couple of years. What's your level of optimism? Would you say that we might see something like that, say, in the next 12 months? Yeah, I mean, the Prime Minister said in the readout of the meeting that he raised economic sanctions, and uh, or I think he said he's actually said he... Um, he laid out Australia's economic position to to Xi, but I think we know what that means. He raised the Australian nationals that are arbitrarily detained. So there are some key points of grit in the relationship, particularly those two, that need to change. Even if there is a signal, a quiet signal perhaps from the Chinese that they're willing to reconsider some of those, in terms of what we see publicly, we were never going to expect there to be a sudden turnaround. It would be too embarrassing for Xi and for the, for the Chinese system for it to be obvious that there's a link between a high-level dialogue and a concession. But let's hope that that we do start to see incrementally, perhaps quite quietly done, always done for other reasons, and it will take months for this to play out, but let's hope that we start to see some of those forms of coercion lifted off. I mean, let's certainly hope that people like Chung Lei, the, uh, uh, the Australian journalist who's been detained in, in China and, and, and of course, Yang Hongjun as well. Let's hope that, that they might have a change in their fortunes because what's happening to them is genuinely terrible. And, and, and you mentioned the economic sanctions. Yes, let's, let's hope that that changes as well. 
would we assume that it'll work the other way as well, that Beijing will be looking for concessions on our part, that they might try to trade some, some of these things that in our view have clearly been placed unfairly in the first place. You know, If we're talking about a reset, the current settings are the starting point and then we sort of trade things back and forth and therefore we're essentially compromising on things that shouldn't be there in the first place, like the trade measures. Do you think it's fair to assume that, that China will look to extract concessions from us? Yeah, we've had a few discussions here in Aspie about what exactly the Chinese would ask for. I mean, they're, they're, if you look at the 14 points, that document that was, or 14 grievances, whatever you want to call them, that document that was handed over by some Chinese embassy officials to the media in the mm. Hyatt Hotel just down the road from here, most of the stuff that was in there is stuff that no Australian government could ever concede on. Because sure. uh, some of it is actually not even within the power of an Australian government to control. Yeah. There were concerns about how the media behaves. There were concerns about how nameless think tanks that are ostensibly uh, critical of China are behaving. There, there, there are things in there that are f- fundamental to freedom of speech and the nature of the Australian political system and way of life, Australian values that simply cannot be conceded on. So, so that brings us to the question, well, what would China actually expect to get if it were trying to be transactional? We wondered whether China might look at something like the um, the CPTPP, terrible acronym, but you know the Trans-Pacific mm-hmm. Partnership yep. in its current iteration, and perhaps ask whether Australia would be it would be willing to lend a degree of support to that. I suspect that any Australian government would carefully sidestep that and point to the fact that the accession procedures uh, are based on certain standards that any country that wants to join has to meet. So there are ways around some of those requests if they are being made. But yeah, I think the nature of Uh, The Communist Party and the Chinese political system is that they will try to extract transactional benefits in exchange for high-level dialogue if they can. I think everything we've seen from the Australian system is, well, that's not on the table. Fundamentally, the Australian system is prepared to talk, but China also needs to um, uh, take its foot off Australia's throat. It needs to in in the longer term. There needs to be a relaxation of the the trade sanctions and these Australian nationals need to be allowed to come home. one obvious possibility is tempering is the Australian government tempering its language on certain issues, whether that's human rights in Xinjiang, whether it's maritime security and, and freedom of navigation in the South China Sea. Do you think something like that might be possible? No, not really. I mean, I think what you can or at least do, possible that China might ask for it. Not not that oh, not, yeah, that, sure, Austra- no, not that Australia sure, would acquiesce. Yeah. Sorry. No, you're right. No, I'm sure they'll ask. You know, this classic kind of you know why why use the megaphone? Why not just quietly sure, communicate sure. to us that you know, if you've got a, if you've got a problem, just let us know in sure. behind closed doors. Uh, of course, they'll always say that they said it to everybody. We got a hint that they said it to Justin Trudeau. Xi Jinping obviously was upset that Trudeau had the the gall to uh, reference a private conversation in a, outside of the, the the context in which it was made. So yeah, we, they will they will ask Australia to be quieter on issues like human rights. I don't think. That Australia can be what, what Australia can do, and what the current government has made a point of saying it will do, is be careful of its tone. I guess it is a position of the the current government that they think the coalition government that preceded them got the tone a little bit wrong in places. So yeah, there are ways of saying it, but fundamentally, I don't see any Australian government being able to simply change our values, change the expectations of the Australian people that we will stick up for human rights. That's not going to happen. Yeah. I mean, since you mentioned the Trudeau episode, it was fascinating and fascinating timing from Australia's point of view and not suggesting any correlation between the two, but just as um, just as we've had this sort of uh, diplomatic breakthrough, things have gone quite the reverse uh, for the Canadian government. But I see, among other things there, that there's certainly no broader 
lesson or conclusion to be drawn about the way that Beijing and uh, Xi Jinping are going to conduct themselves diplomatically here just because of the um, improvement in the in the diplomatic situation with Australia. But by contrast, the, there will still be moments where they fairly clearly try to intimidate it. And I think this was a case where it was an inappropriate um, intervention by Xi on another leader in, uh, in a public setting like that. But those sorts of behaviours and that sort of conduct will continue. Oh, I think absolutely. And this is a long playbook to a certain degree that there's always one democracy that seems to be in the chiller yeah. or the, or the yep. deep freeze or whatever the, uh, the metaphor is. Canada, to be honest, has understandable grievances with China and has had for a while. So, uh, you know, thankfully the two Michaels have been released. But but yes, I guess if Australia is off the naughty step to a certain degree, then there is room for someone else to to be on it. That is a, a playbook. China will probe the democracies and, and look for an area of weakness. If it's not working in one area, it will move to another. So Joe Biden met with Xi Jinping as well, of course. I think that was a three-and-a-half-hour meeting. Biden said afterwards uh, he was determined that this shouldn't become another Cold War. At the same time, there were no obvious outcomes from that that suggest any progress in cooperation between the two superpowers. Penny Wong has talked about the US and China you know, reaching a settling point I believe this was the first face-to-face meeting between Biden and Xi, certainly as respective leaders of their countries. Was there anything that you saw out of the Biden-Xi meeting that might sort of suggest any kind of progress or how would you read the mood of the meeting, the remarks of the the two leaders afterwards? Yeah, I mean, the remarks were cordial. I mean, it's always interesting to see whether there's differences in the accounts that come out from either side and there were on this occasion as there, as I think there often are, you're not. It's not the sort of meeting that produces an agreed joint statement. Obviously, I mean, one that sort of jumped off the shelf, I guess, was I think the U.S. side claimed that there was some agreement over the need for there to be uh, no use of nuclear weapons. Obviously, from the U.S.'s perspective, they would, that would be read in terms of the threats that, that Russia is making to use nuclear weapons you know, over Ukraine. And I, I think the Chinese didn't include that in their own readout. I do tend to assume that the US readouts are likely to be more accurate. Um, (laughs) Really? Let's hope that um, we are indeed making progress with China in in putting some some pressure, as is necessary, on Russia to change its ways and to avoid a a, a disaster in in Europe. I mean, in terms of the fact that it's their first meeting as as leaders, I think think Biden spent about sort of something like 70 hours in the same room as she when he was vice president to Obama. So he does know the, the individual. Uh, which is an interesting dynamic to be to be building from the White House uh, when they were sort of doing the press release before the meeting. Used some interesting language, sort of saying, "This is about managing our competition." So, being very clear that the uh, the aim here is not to get these two countries to get along. They're competitors. Thing they're going to they're going to rigorously compete. Competition short of conflict is, yep. is the aim. So, this is about putting in uh, channels of communication. Almost like the hotlines of the of the Cold War, means of, of communicating to each other and making sure that when there's something like a, a friction point over the Taiwan Strait or North Korea does something stupid, that they they can work out what to do about it short of conflict. Right. Okay. And it, I mean, we can we can have some reassurance that it's been useful in establishing that relationship, or that that, that personal relationship, and and maintaining that hotline as you. As yeah, you I mean, the, the hotline is perhaps the wrong metaphor, and you know, it does sort of. That's a crisis situation. Yeah, crisis management and 
a variety of means of communication across the two systems. Yeah, yeah. But but a bit like the old joke about the only thing being worse than being talked about is not being talked about. The only thing worse than talking is not talking. So as there was paralysis between Australia and, and China for a while, I mean, we obviously it would be disastrous if that were to happen between the uh, the US and China, where you have two superpowers not talking to each other. Absolutely. What was it Churchill said? George or not war war. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Let's just cover off on the um, on the situation in Ukraine. So we had a very worrying and startling uh, period there. It looked like what could have been a, a Russian missile landing in uh, in a NATO country in Poland, killing two civilians. It appears that that is not the case. Jens Stoltenberg, the NATO sec gen, has um, has come out and said they they don't believe that that's the case. It it appears to be a uh, Ukrainian uh, missile defence projectile that has gone off course. I think. Zelensky is currently uh, disputing that at the time that we're recording this, but certainly it was an enormous relief to hear that in NATO's mind, at least, it appears not to have been a, a Russian missile. Interested in your views, but I, I mean, one thing that jumped out at me was just how quickly and calmly NATO sought to de-escalate here. They relied on, on a Polish investigation, placed faith in that and looked as quickly as possible to establish that this was not something that NATO had to treat as a direct provocation or a direct threat. Now, obviously, it's not insignificant that we now have two citizens in a NATO country killed as a consequence of Russia's aggression, and Stoltenberg didn't hesitate whatsoever to to point out that ultimately the, the blame for this did lie with Russia, even if it wasn't a Russian missile. It would be a very different situation, I imagine, if somehow a strike happened on Russian territory that could potentially be attributed to a to a NATO country, I don't think we'd be we'd see that uh, that instinct to quickly de-escalate like this if the shoe were on the other foot. But just give me your thoughts on what we can actually take away from this episode with the facts that we we currently have. It's difficult, as you say. We we do need to find out what the facts are. I think everybody at least in Ukraine, on the, in the Ukrainian government side and, and in NATO agrees that, that, that we need to know the facts. I also agree that ultimately this is Russia's fault if they're going to be invading another country and firing missiles at them. That country is going to defend itself how it can with its air defences. And it's tremendously unfortunate if, after in the fullness of full investigation, if this were a Ukrainian uh, air defence missile that's gone astray, that's, that's a terrible outcome. But not the Ukrainians' fault fundamentally. It's just, it's sure. just Russia's fault for starting the war. Full credit to, to Poland, I think, in the way they've handled this, and absolutely, you know, absolutely dreadful that, that people have been killed on the on the Polish side of the border. But um, it's difficult to say more, as you say, while we're recording. But it does just show just how dangerous a situation Europe is in right now. And you know, just because it perhaps wasn't Russia that fired the missile this time, if that's if that's what uh, that's what the investigation finds, doesn't mean that Russia won't be watching how how the west responds mm. and seeing if they can use this as another point of leverage somehow so yeah tremendously dangerous and important to know the facts i completely agree that it really underscores what a precarious situation we're in i mean just the the geography and the amount of military firepower that is bumping up against the borders of nato countries the potential for it to spill over into nato and put nato in a position where it really doesn't have any um option but to come up with a more forceful response is it's been a sobering incident even if it turns out to have been um, one that wasn't deliberate and wasn't a provocation from Russia directly. We'll just finish off with a quick couple of observations. Um, I'm interested in your thoughts on US politics and Donald Trump has announced his um, candidacy we believe for um, 2024. A couple of thoughts are that if we had a Trump presidency and the recent G20 and and other summits uh, had been going on, 
we might have seen quite a sort of different approach from the US to the Indo-Pacific region. And also, I suppose it just throws into an interesting perspective the 2024 election itself raises uh, whether it uh, influences Joe Biden's decision whether or not to run, whether the Republican Party decides that Donald Trump is not the standard bearer that they want in 2024, and, and this actually empowers uh, or motivates the DeSantis side to push him forward. Uh, any thoughts on all of that? I must admit, I did, the threshold to talk knowledgeably about US domestic politics is so high. And even in Australia, I find you know people just follow it so closely. There is an element, I think, of voyeurism around guilty, what's, guilty going on charged, with, yeah. Uh, yeah, what's going on with Trump. People do just love to watch it like a soap opera, sometimes aghast, I think. I'm not one of those people, I must admit, I'm I sort of primarily interested in this region and, and international affairs. So I'll probably ap- approach that question through what it might mean for international affairs. I mean, I think for me, the interesting thing is the comparison of what has Biden done. Uh, first of all, he's turned up in the region for this summit season. Always difficult to know that Trump would turn up. And secondly, he, he, before he's met Xi, obviously the most important meeting he was having here, he's spoken to his core allies. He's spoken to the Japanese, the South Koreans, and importantly, he's spoken to Anthony Albanese, he's spoken to Australia. So his core allies in this region, or the US core allies in this region, know that when uh, when the president talks to the Chinese president, the allies' interests are at the top of the US president's mind. I don't think many people felt that was the case with Donald Trump. Sure. He'd be going in there looking to strike a deal, but probably the last thing on his mind was what his allies thought was important to get across the table. So for me, yeah, that's an interesting vignette, interesting comparison to make. Yeah, good. All right, like I say, big week in international affairs. Uh, good to discuss. Alex, thank you. Thanks very much. At the 2015 G20 summit, world leaders recognised the risks that state-sponsored cyber espionage posed to the long-term economic growth of nations and their prosperity. Following on from their briefing note to this year's G20 summit, Dr Ben Stevens speaks to Dr Gatra Priandita and Bart Hogaveen about why ICT-enabled IP theft still remains an important issue that affects developed and developing nations alike. Welcome, Bart. Welcome, Gatcha. So today we're going to be talking about cyber-enabled IP theft and the 2015 G20 norms. So, Gatcha, against all odds, Indonesia has successfully concluded the G20 conference yesterday with the joint adopted leaders' declaration. But one thing that was not covered and arguably forgotten was the norm against state-sponsored economic cyber and espionage. On Tuesday, ASPI released a statement calling on G20 leaders to reaffirm their previous agreement and task a G20 working group to further investigate the issue of state-sponsored ICT-enabled theft of IP for commercial gain. Can you tell us a bit more about this norm and why G20 should care? Sure. So the norm against state-sponsored cyber-enabled IP theft is at its core a norm of responsible state behavior. It was a norm that really emerged in 2015, sort of following an agreement between President Barack Obama and Xi Jinping that no country should support or sponsor the theft of intellectual property for commercial gain. Now, this agreement was was also adopted by the G20 in Turkey months later. It was really in response to this growth in the number of cases of companies in the United States, in advanced economies, but also in some companies in Global South, you know, under attack cyber espionage operations and 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 you know intellectual property and all that were stolen. So it was an agreement that emerged out of the shared idea that that you know states should probably not support this kind of thing. 
And when we when we talk IP, what what is it that we are referring to? So intellectual property refers to intangible assets that are really products of the mind. They're things like patents and trademarks and copyrights, uh, even geographic indications. So these are IP to protect, for example, champagne in France or the batik in Indonesia. But when we talk about cyber-enabled IP theft, we're not only talking about countries stealing patents. We're also concerned about trade secrets and sensitive business information because these are items with great commercial value that could benefit another company. Moving on to BART now, seven years on, do you think the G20 norm has had its intended effects? Well, I think with all these kind of things, it's a bit of a mixed bag, right? So so on the one hand, it was very clearly articulated in 2015 and, and re-articulated in 2016 by the G20. I think ever since we've seen it kind of slipping off the agenda for the G20 a bit or even quite a bit. But it doesn't mean it has slipped off the agenda entirely. I mean, we've seen even in the past few years, a number of big attributions of cyber incidents to other states, including in July 2021 and back in 2018 by a grand coalition of countries accusing, in this case, the Chinese government of being responsible or at least being supportive of a long-term campaign of taking trade secrets from other countries. So in that sense, the norm is still alive. I think the the biggest challenge that we see and that we also articulated in our briefing note is that it has slipped off the agenda in terms of our priority. So it's a priority amongst many priorities. And secondly, is that we see that that kind of in in terms of kind of following up on attributions and kind of really boosting cybersecurity resilience, not just in developed economies, but also in emerging economies. I think that could still do with a bit of attention from uh, like partner partners, such as the US, such as Australia and others. So the norm was on the G20 agenda, as you mentioned, in 2015 and 2016, but really fell through in the years that followed. So Gacha, why do you suspect that was the case? So I think there's several reasons. Firstly, some countries who committed to the norm have not actually taken the issue as seriously as they should. So one of these countries is probably China. There are increasing number of cases involving Chinese uh, hacking groups that are allegedly tied to the Chinese state. So CSIS in America came up with this statistic. There were 60 incidents of IP theft targeted at commercial firms that were tied back to the Chinese government uh, out of 121 from 2016. So China hasn't taken it as seriously as it should. Uh, Many countries in the global south have also not seen the issue as a key priority. Um, And this makes a lot of sense because I think, firstly, the assumption has often been that cyber-enabled IP theft is an issue that primarily faces commercial firms and universities uh, in advanced economies. But as we have conducted our own research here at ASPE, a lot of uh, firms and universities in, in emerging economies are also increasingly targeted. You know, there are many more cases now in Southeast Asia where hacking groups affiliate with state actors, for example, target infrastructure projects and even places like, you know, energy companies. So, but, but, you know, a lot of these countries focus more on more pressing cybersecurity challenges, uh, which makes complete sense because I think they're grander in scale and number. And there hasn't been much research on the subject of cyber-enabled IP theft in these countries anyway. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting from the point of view of how much input these developing economies have in the global supply chains and overseas companies are willing to invest in these countries that might be put off by more attacks targeting specific industries. Mm -hmm. And I think an additional factor is that it requires quite advanced capability to be able to detect it in the first place. Mm. So I think our generic understanding of of, of what it implies for individual industries or individual companies or individual economies uh, is still fairly basic. Uh, so we know what's happening in largely the US, we know what's happening kind of largely in, in Europe, but kind of in the rest of the world, it's still kind of a bit of a, a black spot in terms of kind of our understanding. 
And, and IP itself in many of these countries, you know, they're, they're primarily focused on protecting things like trademarks and geographic indications over things like patents or even business information. Next question for yourself, Gatra, is why do you think the Indonesian presidency has not included this norm in this year's leadership statement? So I think there are three key factors. The first reason is, as I mentioned, cyber-enabled IP theft has not been seen as a serious cybersecurity threat in Indonesia just yet. There are more pressing cybersecurity concerns. So as a result, perhaps the Indonesian presidency has not seen it as a, as a key agenda item that's necessary. Secondly, it really follows a trend, I think, in G20 leader statements that the norm has sort of fallen out. So it was in the leader's declaration in 2015, and it was also in the leader's declaration in 2016. But really since then, cyber-enabled IP theft as a subject is somewhat written subsumed by issues concerning cross-border data flows and data security. So if you look at the G20 leader's um, declaration this year, the subject was also covered under data security. Another third reason is that I think Indonesia's key priority this year was just to have you know a G20 summit that was that was as normal as possible, getting a leader's declaration out that would cover other issues on the agenda that was of importance to Indonesia and many other countries um, in emerging economies. You know, cyber-enabled IP theft as a norm has unfortunately been a, a, one of those politicized issues. It's a norm that's been mentioned by the G7, for example. G7 has consistently talked about it. It's a cybersecurity threat that's talked about by a lot of other advanced economies like the Netherlands, Australia. Canada. So there's probably a fear as well that mentioning the norm in the leader's declaration would actually create more division. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting observation, I think, because even President Jokowi, I think when he was addressing kind of the Ukraine-Poland border incident, he said, well, this is not an issue for the G20. That's political military. We stay out of that. And I think if you look at, back at this norm, where initially when kind of the US and China coined it in, in 2015, they proposed this kind of economic norm of responsible state behavior in cyberspace. But I think as we kind of unpack that over the last year and a half or so, actually we found out that it is not so much, I mean, it touches on economic issues, but in essence, it is a, an issue of kind of political relations between states. Do you spy on each other and do you use anything that you steal for benefiting your own industry or your, your own companies? So I think that also kind of, to me, kind of signals that there is a bit of an unease kind of in the G20 context to talk about some of the economic issues that have higher political ramifications. But here's where we could be somewhat, you know, sort of end this in a somewhat positive note. You know, all three of us went on a tour of Southeast Asia recently to talk about cyber-enabled IP theft. And there was a lot of enthusiasm about the subject among cybersecurity agencies. Indonesia was one of them. And it's, it's very much possible. I mean, we can be hopeful that perhaps they might bring it up next year uh, when they cheer us in. Well, and I think the other thing which is kind of really positive is that that's across the region, which is not just Southeast Asia or the border in the Pacific, but I think across the world, there is a great momentum at the moment to kind of to talk about how do you strengthen resilience in your economy against cybersecurity threats, and whether that's kind of against data breaches like we're facing here in Australia, whether that's against other states spying on you, or whether that's in the context of cyber conflict or cyber warfare. In essence, in terms of defense, you're looking at the very same things. So even though kind of we're looking at different elements of security threats in terms of defending yourself and increasing your resilience, you're looking kind of at the same measures, which is general cybersecurity awareness, doing simple basic things at scale across your economy and make sure that everyone is part of the dialogue. Especially as economies increase the digitalization, particularly across Southeast Asia, it's been a key trend. And leading into that, what does that mean for the future of the norm? I think, I mean, given kind of what we've seen over the last year or so where, I mean, there's obviously this trend of decoupling in the technological space between the US and China, countries in Southeast Asia find themselves kind of torn between, I think to an extent, even Australia. 
But as we kind of are increasing our borders also in kind of in the, in the technology space, I could imagine that we might see kind of an uptick in, in cases of state-sponsored cyber espionage for commercial purposes, because that access to technology through legitimate means is, is being restricted. So I, I can imagine that states who already have trespassed that threshold of kind of not doing it and are in, in the business of cyber espionage will double down on that and, and we'll see more cases. To sort of play devil's advocate, I think, I mean, I completely agree with what Bert has said. I think growing Central American tech decoupling will sort of create, and, and major power rivalry generally will create the incentives for states to sort of sponsor cyber, economic cyber espionage. But at the same time, as all these countries become bigger targets of economic cyber espionage, they might also take it more, more seriously. Thank you, Bart. Thank you, Gatra. If you are interested in learning more about this particular norm, please read our latest report and briefing that we released on Tuesday. It's on the ASPE website. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Policy, Guns and Money. We'll be back with another episode soon.